0: Buddy, and welcome to Tell Me About Podcast, where each week, two nerdy friends deep dive random topics. I'm Laura.
1: And I'm Tom.
0: And this is episode six. So first of all, just some housekeeping items. Uh, we wanted to apologize for the late release of our last episode. Uh, we were having some technical issues with the editing program that we were using, so Luckily, we have that all figured out now, and it should be, you know, smooth sailing going forward. But you know, our our apologies for that.
1: So, uh, we are growing leaps and bounds. We are in India, we're in Australia, and we've now tripled our listenership in Canada. So we thank you. Uh, we thank all of you for listening and and for letting us into your podcast lives, so to speak. We appreciate it, and uh, we are here to try to entertain you, and uh, hopefully you spread the word about our podcast.
0: And we know that you could listen to anybody's podcast, so the fact that you listen to ours means a lot to us. So thank you all very much, and, and hopefully you stick with us. So this week is my episode, and I did a deep dive on a topic that has always really interested me, and that is the Witness Protection Program. I wanted to know how much TV and movies gets right about it. And I've learned that it's a much riskier and more controversial program than I initially thought it was. Now, I'm not sure about you, Tom, but and I feel like this is somewhat of a common feeling, but there's been times in my life where I've wanted to just up and leave and start a whole new life with a whole new identity. Have you ever felt that way?
1: I feel that way at least once a week. Okay.
0: All right, so you get so, where I'm coming from.
1: So yes.
0: Yes, okay. So although it's it's really not that easy and after researching the Witness Protection Program, I've, I've certainly changed my view a bit on that. So quick warning before we get into it, uh, this episode contains mention of violence, addiction, murder, and suicide. So first let's start with a brief history of the program. So formed by Gerald Schur in 1971, The Witness Protection Program, also known as the Federal Witness Security Program, or WITSEC, was established as a result of the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970. This act also has the provision for the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization statute known as RICO. We all know that seems to be uh, in the news quite a bit these days. It was later amended in 1984 to include provisions for children of witnesses. Now in the 1950s and 60s, mobsters were out of control and had a lot of influence in the major cities at the time. The feds wanted to put away as many mafia criminals as possible, particularly from the Genovese and Lucchese families. The inspiration for the program came from a mobster named Joe Vallacci, who was a low level member of the Genovese family. In 1959, Vallacci was sent to prison on drug charges and blamed Vito Genovese for his predicament. Genovese then put a hit on Valachi in prison, and Valachi would end up killing the man who thought was the hitman sent to kill him. The man, unfortunately, was not the hitman, and Valachi was convicted of his murder in 1963. Weighing his options, Valachi decided to work with the feds and tell them all the details from his 30-year career in the mob, including the names of the bosses of almost every crime family at the time. He testified before the Senate in public hearings and revealed a lot of new information on the inner workings of the mob. He spent the rest of his life in federally protected custody for his cooperation and died of natural causes in the 1970s. So I highly recommend if you guys want to hop on YouTube and watch those Senate hearings from the 1960s, it's it's really fascinating to see him kind of divulge that information and the secrets that The public had no idea about at the time, and the feds certainly learned quite a bit of uh, information from his testimony. The information that Valachi provided led to many more arrests, putting quite a dent in the organized crime business. Knowing more about the inner workings of the mob allowed for targeted legislation to curb illegal activity and provide assistance for cooperating witnesses and informants, thus the Witness Protection Program was born. As the name implies, the program provides protection for witnesses of crime and their close family members when the witness's life is in danger because of their testimony due to witness intimidation or the nature or detail of the testimony itself. They make a deal with law enforcement to avoid prosecution and or receive protection of some kind. Now, interesting fact Only about 5% of the program participants are innocent bystanders of a major crime. Most witnesses are involved in the same or similar crimes themselves and can give more detail and evidence of others involved. So, Tom, what do you think is the most common criminal charge among witnesses in the protection program?
1: I would say it's either a RICO charge or it's murder.
0: Oh, good guesses. Excellent guesses. So most witnesses are providing major evidence in felonies such as drug trafficking, terrorism, national security crimes, organized crime, and espionage. Drug trafficking is the most common charge among program participants. Is that surprising?
1: No, no, not at all.
0: So there are a few different layers to the witness protection program. So first you have federal versus state witness protection. The federal program is government-funded and overseen by the Department of Justice. The Office of Enforcement Operations, or the OEO, does the legwork to approve witnesses, and the U.S. Attorney General has the final say on who is approved for the program. State Witness Protection Program, however, is not as well-funded, nor can it provide the level of protection that the federal program does. Participants in the state program are usually involved with lower level, yet still serious crimes in which they provide their testimony. State witnesses can be temporarily relocated with protection provided during the criminal trial. Participants in the state program are approved by the state attorney general, but they usually do not receive new identities or a permanent relocation. Now, California, Illinois, and New York have the largest state witness protection programs in the US. Internationally, The UK, Ukraine, and Israel also have similar programs with varying degrees of success. Now, my research from here on out focuses mostly on the federal witness protection program. Then you have incarcerated versus non-incarcerated witness protection. Depending on the severity of their crimes, witnesses may be incarcerated for a period of time while receiving witness protection. They are transferred to another prison or held in protective custody, and they're also given more privileges. Non-incarcerated witnesses are relocated along with their spouses and children and given financial assistance and new identities. The Federal Bureau of Prisons retains custody of the incarcerated witnesses and the U.S. Marshals oversee the non-incarcerated program participants. The ultimate goal of the program is to provide security, safety and protect the health of its witnesses. The program touts a 100% success rate since its inception and reports an estimated 30 witnesses were murdered who didn't follow the rules or left the program. Trials with witnesses in the program also have an 89% conviction rate. That's pretty good.
1: That's very good. Although I would like to see what the context of that is.
0: True. Yes. Yeah. Context is everything.
1: Because the, you know, it's one thing to get a conviction, uh, it is another thing to see whether that conviction was warranted or on the up and up. <laughs> gotcha.
0: So how many people do you think have participated in the Witness Protection Program since 1971?
1: Is it comparable to the population of a major city?
0: Um. No.
1: Larger or smaller? Smaller. So I'm going to say about...
0: 350,000. Wow. So roughly 19,000 people have been in the program since 1971. That seems low, right?
1: That seems incredibly low. Uh
0: Uh-huh. I read that number. And first I thought it was like people that were currently in it as of today. And it's no, since the program began, like in 50 years, like that's insane.
1: That seems very, very low.
0: Mm -hmm. Agreed. So the federal government spends about 10 million dollars annually for the program, though other sources that I saw say it may be more. There's a lot of secrecy and um, not a lot of sh- not a lot of things shared by federal agents about the program. I mean, rightfully so, and it's understandable why. But in terms of my research, I saw a couple conflicting things and I think I think that has a lot to do with it.
1: But again, all that being said, it still seems very low.
0: It does. Yeah, I was very surprised by that number. Mm -hmm. So tell us, are you guys surprised by that number? Did you think it would be higher? Let us know in the comments or send us an email. The participants today are mostly U.S. citizens. And if they are foreign or undocumented, ICE will likely deport them rather than offering them witness protection. I didn't really go into what happened to foreign or undocumented witnesses prior to the formation of ICE in like early 2000s. Um, but I'd, I'd love to, to dig a little bit more into that. The program is not rehabilitative, but witnesses can turn their lives around. The recidivism rate for the program participants is about 17% compared to the 41% recidivism rate for parolees. Now I wanna talk a bit more about the logistics of the program. So Gerald Scher, the founder, and Pete Early had both worked in the Department of Justice Organized Crime and Racketeering Division when they wrote a book called WITSEC Inside the Federal Witness Protection Program. And this book really shed some light on how the program operates. Early on, the program didn't have much structure, and it didn't provide education on how the program worked and what the witnesses could expect. Some witnesses in the early years waited months for new identities, potentially jeopardizing their safety. It took quite a while to iron out the issues before the program was running smoothly. When being considered for the witness protection program, potential witnesses must provide testimony either then or in the future for crimes important enough for the federal government to want to offer protection. The feds really need to calculate their risk. Witnesses are carefully screened and must undergo physical, psychiatric, and dental exams, as well as extensive background checks. The psychiatric exam includes question about history of suicide attempts, violence, drug and alcohol addiction, family life, and intimate details of their marriage if they have one. Potential witnesses are also evaluated for risk of self-harm and harm to others, all ongoing medical conditions and their implications are considered. Drug testing and treatment could become a program requirement for a witness in active addiction. If approved, witnesses need to decide within only a few hours if they want to participate in the program. Can you imagine like only a few hours to make such a life changing decision?
1: I mean, I kind of deal with that on a daily basis where Mm -hmm. people have, limited amount of time in my job to make big decisions but nothing to the extent of you have to basically uproot your entire life move somewhere completely different and you know basically forget you forget the old you
0: Mm -hmm. i mean it's yeah it's it's probably the biggest change like you could ever make to your life and you just couple out two three hours like we need an answer (laughs) you know exactly so this goes for their spouses and their children as well. Now, they may be able to have a quick goodbye with trusted individuals and in their lives. We'll, we'll get to more of that in a minute. So once approved for the Witness Protection Program, protection is provided for the rest of the witnesses' lives as long as they don't commit another crime or leave the program. Participation is completely voluntary, but witnesses must agree to a list of rules and sign a pledge to be a good person and live a normal life for the duration of their time in the program, which seems very simple. Just, you know, be a good person, live a normal life. Witnesses are initially taken to safe houses as they are initiated into the program, the largest of which is located near D.C. In 1988, the WITSEC Safe Site and Orientation Center was built to house Witness Protection Program participants and their families prior to relocation. Witnesses are transported there in armored cars with blacked-out windows so they never see the outside of the building or its location. The building can withstand bombs and has 24-hour security surveillance. The center can house up to six families at a time in furnished apartments with private courtyards but also very high concrete walls. All families and their assigned personnel are kept separate from each other. And state programs have more recently tried to model the WITSEC Safe House for its witnesses. And most famous is called Safeguard in Detroit. And Baltimore is also seriously considering their own safe house similar to WITSEC's. So the WITSEC Safe Site and Orientation Center is where the relocation planning and replacement identity process begin. Witnesses are asked where they want to go and then are instead sent to a completely different place. So the explanation behind that is that, you know, if you told somebody that you always want to go to California and you tell the feds, Hey, you know, I want to go to California. Well, they're not going to send you there. They're going to send you somewhere where you don't mention where nobody could find you. So I thought, I thought that was pretty interesting that they ask and then send you somewhere completely different.
1: Missoula, Montana. Here we come.
0: <laughs> it sounds lovely. It does. It's
1: a, it's a, it's a, it's a mild cold.
0: <laughs> Just mild. Okay. So to keep consistent with the environment that they're used to, witnesses from cities tend to go to other cities, and those from suburbs tend to go to other suburbs. They're shown a video of their new location within two weeks of entering the program. Witnesses also receive new identities, including new birth certificates, social security numbers, driver's licenses, work and credit history, and school records, now, Gerald Sheer talked about in the book how parents had asked him to improve his kids' gra- their kids' grades as, you know, they, they assumed a new identity, but he said he always denied that request. They are given a new family tree going back to new grandparents. All previous debts must be paid or the witness will have to declare bankruptcy prior to entry. A flag is also put on their old information to alert feds. If anyone is looking into them now, a story that I came across uh, in my research was of this Chicago cop, a dirty cop, who I believe he was looking to find Sammy Gravano, who we're going to we're going to talk about later. I'm going to tell briefly his story. Um so he w- he was looking all over the country for him uh looking in his records at the police station and since the feds had flagged this guy's uh information they immediately got an alert that this you know particular cop was looking for him and i believe the cop uh was convicted um and spent some time in jail for doing that so witnesses are asked to choose a new name and oftentimes they keep their same first name or their first initial of their last name to make the transition a bit easier. Now I always thought that they were just given the name, but they choose it themselves and their new name must be ethnically compatible and can't be the name of a celebrity witnesses and their families are also told to practice signing their new names to help them adjust. Witnesses are soon ready to be temporarily housed in their new locations with their new identities. They are connected with a new doctor, dentist, church, job training, and also receive budget counseling if needed. It was unclear in my research if local law enforcement is notified that a person was a criminal and in the witness protection program to just to have an awareness or provide extra security for them. It was very, like I said, very conflicting. Some sources said, yes, they're aware. Others say they, they aren't aware, but more sources say that they aren't aware. So I'm, I'm going to go with that.
1: I mean, it would make sense if they are.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree.
1: But I would also think it makes sense that the fewer people know about the witness, the better.
0: Exactly. So the feds must rent or buy housing for the witnesses in real time. There are no empty homes already purchased by the program waiting for the witnesses. The program provides housing and furnishings in an amount dependent on family size and local economics. Witnesses are given an average of $60,000 in the first six months with the expectation that they become self-sufficient quickly and aggressively seek employment opportunities, although they have been paid up to $1 million, at least for one individual who testified for over a year in multiple trials. The U.S. Marshals provide 24-hour physical security, and two Marshals essentially rotate every two hours. When the witness's testimony is needed, the U.S. Marshals require a 10-day notice to arrange plans for transporting the witness to court. Witnesses have been transported in mail trucks, helicopters, and fishing boats to testify, which which seems kind of badass to me, just in my personal opinion.
1: Well, who would, who wouldn't want to, you know, be in a helicopter?
0: Right? So once the witnesses are all settled, all the criminal trials are adjudicated, and there is no imminent threat, the marshals only check in on them once a year. That would make me really uncomfortable. I'd be like, "Can we just, can we just keep going? Like maybe, maybe just once a week, you know? Not, <laughs> not once. That just seems. I mean, I get it. You know, the expenditure of the program. If they, if they did that, but you know, it's,
1: it seems very odd. Hmm.
0: I know. I read that, and I'm like, oh, that's that's not very frequent contact. So the program does have a few perks, although fewer than it used to. In the 1980s, mob hitman Jimmy the Weasel Fraudiano. Now I'm going to stop here and say, when I go into some stories later, these these nicknames are phenomenal. So I, I'm just going to prepare you for that now. So Jimmy the Weasel Fraudiano was able to get witness protection to pay for his wife's dental work, breast implants, and facelift. The program would also pay for dental work of more direct witnesses, and it's more often than they do today. Another witness of the program had a penile implant, which was recommended by his therapist to help increase his self-esteem. That is a true story. Today, the program will facilitate plastic surgery, but for only those who afford who can afford it, and they pay for it themselves.
1: You know, listen, some people use Viagra. Some people get a government-funded Penal implant.
0: I mean, options, right? Some witnesses do still serve prison time, but they also get some perks. In 1996, incarcerated witnesses were served lobster for dinner and had access to unlimited phone calls. While some witnesses do serve life sentences, they get relocated, receive ongoing physical protection, and definitely have an easier life than the typical inmate. The program does have restrictions, of course. Witnesses are never allowed to return to their hometown. They're not supposed to contact unprotected family or former friends. And any family member that is told that their loved one is in witness protection is able to communicate through them through snail mail, phone calls, and they are also given an emergency number.
1: And the idea about them having a much different prison life mm-hmm. than the general inmates. So one thing you're going to hear a lot of me reference a lot in this episode is Goodfellas.
0: Mm-hmm. That, said, that came up a lot in my research. Yeah.
1: Because a lot of what, if you've ever seen the Scorsese film, you know, he he is very, he, he is very particular about a lot of things. Research is one of them. Having his mother make spaghetti sauce for the movie is another one. There's two stories I want to bring up from that. This is the first one though, because there's a famous prison scene in Goodfellas where the wise guys are separated and they're all in this back room and they had they have lobsters shipped in. They, you know, Paul Sovino's there with, you know, cutting the, cutting the garlic with the, with the razor. So it liquefies in the pan and they're cooking steaks. You know, he's going, uh, hey, Tommy, how many, uh, how many onions you put in the, uh, you put in the sauce? Oh, I put uh, three onions in the sauce, Paulie. How many tomatoes? Two tomatoes. You put more onions and me. So it just, it, It's very, basically a lot of what you need to know about witness protection and prison for wise guys. Just go, you can go watch Goodfellas too. After you listen to us, go watch Goodfellas.
0: So the family member that is aware of their loved one in witness protection, they cannot know their location. All the physical mail is destroyed and the phone calls are made on a secure line. Witnesses can also marry after entering the program, but they cannot tell their new spouses about their participation in case they try to use this against them in the future if they divorce or you know something along those lines, which makes sense. That's a good rule. Witnesses can also not rack up any new excessive debt under the new identity. At one point, 32 witnesses had accumulated $73 million in debt and the marshals threatened to kick them out of the program if the debts weren't repaid. Witnesses can be relocated again if they are made. In one case, an individual needed to be relocated ten times after he kept getting discovered. Like, what are you doing? Like, are you just you like have a shirt that's on the witness protection program?
1: I think that I think that's when the, that's what happens when you go to places that go, hey, guess what? Guess what I am? I'm a witness.
0: Right. I yeah, I wish I knew a little more nuance to that story and if if there was anything that he did, you know, that that caused if him If he did, to be I'm made... sure
1: that Law and Order SVU will talk about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so in another case, two witnesses met up and they were completely separate, not involved in the same crime and they wound up starting to deal drugs together. So that was that was a nice little partnership there. Synergy. <laughs> Absolute synergy. If facing incarceration, witnesses must take a polygraph test prior to entering the program and not commit any other crimes while incarcerated. Witnesses can go back to their old lives at any time. And the program is 100% voluntary, as mentioned. Once the feds get their testimony, they have what they need. And these witnesses, they can tell people about their crimes and participation in the program once they're out. Some witnesses do go back to their lives, either because they feel like they're no longer threatened or they just simply don't want to be part of the program anymore. In 1972, Daniel Lapala unfortunately broke the program rules and returned home for a family member's funeral. His house was rigged to explode by men working for those who he was testifying against. He was killed instantly and the house was destroyed when he came back to his home and opened the front door. He died before he could provide his testimony. One of the most surprisingly difficult things I learned in my research is how much the witness protection program affects kids. Children are said to have it the worst, essentially being ripped from everything that they know without really knowing or understanding why. And the adjustment is also the most difficult for them. They are moved to a new town where they don't know anybody and to a new home that is unfamiliar to them.
1: And just think about how hard that has to be
0: I know, you know for the,
1: um, you know, when you're a kid, you're, you're seven, eight, nine years old, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to learn a bit just about the world. You're trying to f- find where you fit in the world and you have to learn, you have to basically retrain yourself to be someone else. These kids didn't do anything wrong.
0: Exactly. That's my you know, point. Were, yeah.
1: You know, their, their crime, quote unquote, so to speak, is that they were born into this.
0: Yeah. Yep. And like, like I said, they're just everything familiar to them is ripped away from them. And, and I'm going to tell a couple stories about kids that grew up in the program. And, and it's, it's pretty devastating.
1: I would, I mean, I would imagine it. I wouldn't, I'd be shocked if it it. wasn't.
0: So like you mentioned, they have to bear this responsibility for something that they had no fault in. And if they're old enough to understand, they have to keep the secret from everyone because of one or both of their parents' actions. They live with this burden for the rest of their lives. Some children do go back to their old identity when they're adults, and they often get stuck in limbo trying to obtain their old identity documents. Custody issues also greatly complicate entry into the program. One story that was, that was really, really sad is uh, in the 1970s, Thomas uh, Leonard, his ex-wife, married a man who entered the witness protection program, and she took Thomas's kids with her. He was not allowed to see his kids after they entered the program. And after years of trying to get them back, he filed for and was awarded full custody by the state of New York. Despite all this, the feds still denied him access to his kids. This case led to an amendment in the Organized Crime Control Act in 1984 that said that the feds need to take joint custody into account before placing children in the witness protection program. It is still difficult and expensive to work out the logistics of shared custody as the non programmed parent must travel under a different identity themselves and take multiple plane routes to get to their destination. Today, the program requires that both parents agree to have their child enter the witness protection program and be relocated.
1: And that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Because I'm surprised
0: it took them that long. Although, because I was thinking, like, why did it take them till 84 to do this? But if you think like divorce wasn't as common back then as it is today.
1: Well, it, it wasn't publicized Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or wasn't out in the open the way it was it is today but you would think that this would be something they would have in place from the second they start the program
0: exactly i
1: just like is like a that's like a really big thing mm -hmm. uh, that you have to think of when you're starting the program you know is think about the federal government think about how government loves to over I don't want to say overregulate, but overlegislate. Mm-hmm. I think it's the better word. How they love to write statutes that try to cover every possible scenario, every possible equation. You know, ev- try to legislate for every possible permutation of what could possibly happen. Mm-hmm. You know, if if X Y Z, then A B C. How could you not think of that? <laughs>
0: Well, I think what happened with this program in particular, as as I kind of mentioned it, it kind of was like sloppily put together and rolled out. And and they really didn't work out the kinks for for definitely a few years, if not a few decades. And I think that the thought behind it, they were so desperate to get, you know, mafia members and and just get them off the street like that. Hey, this is a quick thing we can do. And it just it it, there wasn't I don't know if there was a ton of thought to to these nuances in the beginning, for sure.
1: I mean. The U.S. federal government rolling out something sloppily. Col- cover color me, shot.
0: Thomas shocked. Tom is shocked.
1: <laughs> I am shocked. I am speechless. I'm without speech.
0: It just, uh, particularly for for that for that man Thomas, like he just fought so hard to see his kids, and and the fact that they still denied it after he was awarded custody. Like I get, it. I, I guess the feds were trying to protect the witnesses, but he's also a dad who wants to see his kids. You know,
1: I my thing is just that again for a country that likes to over legislate that seems like a really big contingency that you did not plan for
0: mm-hmm. yeah i agree i was i was surprised that that's at least something some kind of plan wasn't put in place you know back in back in the early 70s but you know so as i mentioned i watched two documentaries about children who grew up in the program and They both absolutely broke my heart. So the first was Mark Harwood, who did a self-made documentary about how his father and his business partner got involved and in over their heads with the loan shark in the 1970s. Now, I'm going to link the YouTube video in our show notes. I I highly recommend you guys go and watch it. Mark is very... He's very sweet. He's very endearing. He's a little cheesy, but it, it really kind of opened my eyes to what that experience is. And I'm going to tell a little bit about his story. But like I said, you know, please go check out the YouTube video that he did for the documentary. It's, it's really good. So his father supposedly paid back the money that he owed, but the loan shark and their associates said that he was still on the hook for thousands of dollars. Not knowing what to do, Mark's father turned to the feds and became an informant. The feds paid his debt to the loan shark over a period of about a year, and Mark's dad agreed to wiretapping to assist with the surveillance of this loan shark. Mark talked about how there was one to two marshals that were at his dad's side 24-7, and he recalled how he grew somewhat close to them as they spent so much time in his home. Then, in late 1972, after obtaining a year of evidence against this loan shark, Mark and his family were relocated from New York to California. Mark was 16 at the time, and he was a very shy kid, but finally coming into his own right before that they moved. Mark's family was first moved to a hotel, then to an apartment, and then finally a house. They tried to adjust to their new life and their new identities, but Mark struggled quite a bit with denial, loneliness, and intense anxiety that he lived with for years after. He and his mother often commiserated about how lonely they were as she missed her parents, her friends, and her old life in New York. In the early years of the program, they didn't provide the $60,000 financial assistance that they do today, and Mark's family didn't directly receive any money. Although his old personal debts of his father were paid by the feds prior to the family's move, so utilities that weren't paid, mortgage that wasn't paid. His father struggled to keep well-paying work. And then after only two years in the program, he accepted a job opportunity in New York and voluntarily took his homesick family out of witness protection. His parents soon divorced after they returned, and it caused even more strain on the family. Now, his father went on to marry his mistress, and his mother became very reclusive. And they unfortunately both developed dementia and passed away in the early 2000s. Interestingly, though, he never really spoke ill of his father and he just basically took the attitude that his dad was more of a victim than anything. I mean, he didn't love the mistress thing, but in terms of the actual crime and being involved in that, you know, he didn't he didn't seem to hold any any ill feelings toward his dad about that.
1: It's funny because there was a you know, I mentioned SVU before I joked about how, you know, it, it, there's always an SVU episode for everything. There actually was an SVU episode where they're investigating a, you know, a a family that had been in the uh, witness protection program that had actually been interlinked with the Russian mafia. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And basically they talk about in in the video, in the episode, a a child who actually his name is Mark, which actually kind of had me wondering if maybe this was one of those kind of ripped from the headlines type of. Type of episodes. He's the son of uh, ex Russian mof- uh, mobster, who actually is played by uh, John Hurd, who was Peter McAllister in Home in Home Alone, mm-hmm. uh, the father in Home Alone, and he ends up the son ends up killing one of the Russian mob like lieutenant's I think like girlfriends or something like that, and then John Hurd gets killed trying to trying to protect him. This was. A kid that, because of his father, had been moved around time after time after time after time after time. One of the, one of the times was when he basically forgot his cover story and blew his cover story to a mm-hmm. to a friend when he was like in the fourth grade, and it just made me think about that. Yeah, you know, again, the the emotional toll, the physical toll that it takes on, the mental, the spiritual toll that it takes on people in the program. Like I said, a lot of them. Yeah, I'm not talking about the people that are, you know, that were the witnesses, per se. You know, although I'm sure it takes a toll on them as well. But I'm talking about the family members. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the spouses, the the romantic partners, the children. You know, the blood family members. That's it's that's a heavy burden.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I go into that a little bit more in a minute, but I think that's something. That when people think about the program, they don't necessarily think about that, and I certainly didn't until I started doing this research. I was like, "Oh shit! Like this is difficult, especially for you know, the non-primary witnesses they call them."
1: Well, and if you think about it, you wouldn't think of it could you you just think of the witness protection Pro- program. It's the witness.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're so again. As we do these episodes like there's so many more layers to some of these topics and so much more nuance and I think bringing that to light it it gives you a different opinion, you know, so just to wrap up Mark's story so like I said he didn't, he didn't really hold any ill will against his dad but he really reflected on the experience of the program itself and. And how that in particular was traumatizing and the effects have followed him ever since then. And he says, I believe he's in his 60s now. And like I said, highly recommend his his little documentary. So I will link that. The other one I watched was about Jackie Taylor, who entered the witness protection program when she was seven years old. Her father was a member of the Hell's Angels and took a plea deal on a murder charge in exchange for witness protection for him and his family. Jackie said she was terrified and crying when she was woken up in the middle of the night randomly by marshals and was taken away in vehicles with blacked out windows. Her mom and her siblings were sent from Ohio to this rundown hotel in Michigan and her father wound up going to prison. She talks about the difficulty she had growing up in the program and describes the whole thing as traumatic She had to grow up without a dad too, which I think just added another layer to this. She did go back to her old identity when she was adult and waited years to get her old documents back. Today, Jackie helps other former children of the program who connect with her mostly via Facebook. She says that many former children struggle with depression, anxiety, and some have died by suicide. Jackie said that she would rather see children put in foster care than the witness protection program and... The feds maintain that children of witnesses can be targets themselves and the program provides them with the most safety of any option. Now, when I heard her say that, this was another documentary on YouTube, I I get where she's coming from and she's coming from a very traumatized place, but I, the foster care has its own challenges in many ways and to kind of prefer yeah, that, that, that,
1: that, right? Yeah, that's traumatizing in its own right.
0: Exactly. Like I like I get where she's coming from, but I kind of side with the feds on this. Like you want to go with the the safety and protection of the program, you know. Now, now, it,
1: yeah, now like would you maybe want to provide counselors? We um, get there.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get
1: there. I think that's a different story.
0: Yeah. Agreed. And like I said, she was in it again. Um, I don't think I have a year on this, but this was a back in like seventies, eighties. So it was again, kind of as they were figuring things out and, and things weren't as, I guess, smooth or not as many services provided. So, so as mentioned, we, you know, want to talk about the effect the program has on a, on adults uh, as well. It's not very positive either. So there is a lot of stress in assuming a new identity and the fear of being made and perhaps killed is, is always there. It's a constant spouses. And I mentioned, you know, kids who enter the program with the primary witness can fare far worse than the witnesses themselves. Again, it's, it's not their burden to bear and it's caused by somebody else's action. So I can't imagine like living with that day after day that you're doing this because something somebody else did adjustment is much more difficult for them, and their fear and anxiety are often much greater than the primary witness. In one documentary, he pointed out that most witnesses are criminals who are used to lying and scamming, so assuming a new identity would likely be easier for them to adjust, and I don't know. It just seems like a bit of a generalization to me. Like criminal or not, like this is still difficult. They're still a human being, you know. But I do, I do agree that you know the non-primary witnesses. It is much difficult, much more difficult on them.
1: Yeah. yeah, and there's always a, I guess, kind of a blanket idea when you go into witness protection. Oh well, they're a criminal, mm-hmm. and I. It's very easy to kind of dismiss their humanity.
0: So. The first few months are typically the hardest as the witnesses are often homesick, lonely, and the isolation of the program can be maddening. Some experience identity crises and have trouble making friends or finding new relationships. And if married, the spouses are forced to spend more time together in a new stressful situation, which often causes more friction in the marriage like we saw in, in Mark's parents' case. For the program itself, It's always facing new challenges with ever-evolving technology, making it more difficult to hide witnesses. The program must also uh, continue to evolve with the times as we see with them creating more structure to the program, enforcing stricter rules, and giving some flexibility to families of divorce. Today, the program provides much more education to their witnesses on what to expect and prepare them better to transition to a new place and a new identity. More therapeutic services are offered to the witnesses to help them cope with these major changes and the implications for their lives. So as you mentioned, the need for for more therapy and services so they absolutely do that now um, more often. One last question that I had that wasn't addressed by much of the research I did is I always wondered if the witnesses were declared dead under their old identity upon entry into the program. So, I dug a little bit further, and I found that that's almost never the case. One source cited the difficulty law enforcement would have in maintaining that lie, the effect that this would have on unprotected family members thinking that their loved one had died, or the program's main focus is essentially keeping the witnesses safe, not you know covering up you know, lies. Essentially, so that makes sense. I just I thought it would be more readily available in the research I did, but I'm glad I'm glad I was able to get that question answered.
1: I mentioned Goodfellas and there's a great the the first scene I mentioned with with the wise guys in prison the other one is there's a scene in the movie near the end of the movie and to set the scene at this point the walls are closing in on Henry Hill and Ray Liotta Um, he's just been arrested by the the cops in Long Island, you know, the, that's the scene where the helicopter's following him all day and he's getting paranoid. And Lorraine Bar- Bracco goes to see Robert De Niro and it, it's insinuated they try to basically have her whacked, for, for lack of a better term. They go and they meet with the prosecuting attorney. Now, in in, in the Scorsese thing, and I didn't find this out till much later on, the prosecuting attorney... In Goodfellas, is the actual prosecuting attorney was the real life prosecuting attorney who prosecuted oh, wow. um, Jimmy Burke. He plays himself, and Jimmy Burke, who is in the movie, was Jimmy Conway, but it's Jimmy Burke. You know, they go through the whole story of, and that's when he's talking. You know, and don't give me the Babe in the Woods routine, Karen. You know, we heard you talking on the phone, and and you know they're not going to be able to get to him. You know, they're going to be able to get to they're going to get to you. They're going to get to your kids. That's the story that you see in the movie. What doesn't get discussed in the movie is what brought down Jimmy Burke was not the Lufthansa heist. It was not the murders. It was actually point-shaving. It was manipulating college basketball games at Boston College. There's the ESPN 30 for 30 that Ray Liotta narrates about it before he died. Basically, they interview the attorney... And he explains that, you know, he's playing himself and he's in the movie. He is what they don't see. First of all, there's two things in there. The movie doesn't show is one, Henry Hill wanted to have his mistresses in the witness protection program uh, with him. And He tells the story that there were, you know, two of his mistresses were outside in the waiting room and Henry wanted them in the program with him. The other thing that you hear is that basically Henry blurts out the point shaming scandal just by accident and the attorney then goes, the prosecutor then goes through and the prosecutors happened to go to Boston college. So, and you know, he, that's how they connected the dots and he just kind of blurted out. Henry Hill was basically his, his brain was a sieve at this point because he had done so much cocaine. He basically kind of just blurted it out and that's how they got Jimmy Burke. It was purely by accident. Mm-hmm. And that's how Henry Hill ended up in Witness Protection. It, w- it was testifying on, on against Jimmy Burke on that. They only make a very brief mention of it in the movie, but that's how it happened. And so, first of all, again, I can't recommend Goodfellas enough because it's a fantastic movie. Um, one for just the plot the other four, the food. But if you want to go, go and watch that scene, it's very authentic to what it was like to be in the witness protect, to basically had be offered a witness protection program.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Again, I didn't know about the prosecutor part until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's wild.
0: It is. All right. So lastly, I did want to share some infamous stories of uh, certain criminals that were in the witness protection program now the first two happened just prior to the formation of the programs when witness protection was just a brand new concept so first up we have mobster joseph the animal barboza who killed several people before testifying against his associates in the 1960s he was relocated by the feds to california and given a new identity it's thought, and I don't know if they ever necessarily proved it. Um, but he killed again several more times before he was eventually shot himself in retribution for his testimony. So I think the point of that one is to really kind of vet these witnesses and and to see if they are going to be a danger to other people. I mean, the the feds don't want this. The feds don't want these criminals committing more crimes, particularly murdering other people. So I think that's something that they learned and later instituted as a rule to really vet these people in the program. Next up, we have John Kelly, an Irish mobster known for being a robber and hitman. His nickname was Swiss Watch, as he was said to have a lot of patience, particularly when he had a target. He committed several famous robberies in the 1960s and was acquitted twice with the help of his lawyer, F. Lee Bailey. Now, kids of the 90s, uh, we certainly remember that name. Uh, and upon research of that, he I learned that he was disbarred in Florida because he was essentially scamming his clients out of money. And it's like, okay, we got a Tom Girardi Jr. here. So that's great. Well,
1: and, and I did not know about that, but I will tell you one thing. You can do a lot of things in the law profession and get to keep your, your key to the kingdom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The one thing you absolutely can't do is fuck around with client money.
0: Yeah. From what I understand, it's really difficult to have a lawyer disbarred, correct?
1: It's very difficult and like I said, you know, there are all stories about lawyers who did heinous things. You know, there was a story, there was a lawyer who was suspended for I think for I think 4 or 5 years. Because he was going in the hospital reading medical records and his idea and his thing was, well, I have a doctorate, so ergo, I'm a doctor. Oh, Jesus. There was one where a lawyer was having a sexual relationship with his client and while they were, and sometimes they would talk about the case while in bed and would he would have a timer. He could have his billable hours.
0: That's Which, gross.
1: I'm just going to leave that there. Oh, that's um, so Gross. The point is, there's a lot you can do and only get suspended. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about disbarment, oftentimes that comes down to to basically missing money or mm-hmm. money that, that should be one place. It should be in one account, but it's in another. Mm-hmm. Whether it's intentional, malicious, or even just mistaken, inadvertent. You got to be really careful when it comes to client money. Mm-hmm. That's the one, that's the one real no, no.
0: So you could like murder your client and it's like, well, all right, but just don't steal his money. Well, that, that probably, <laughs> that's an, That's an extreme example. That's
1: an extreme yes. example. But like I said, the, they, bar associations love to make examples of mis- of mishandling client funds.
0: Mm-hmm. So to finish up the story of John Kelly, despite his two acquittals for those trials that F. Lee Bailey uh, helped him with, uh, he did wind up flipping on his fellow mobsters and he was protected by the FBI for the rest of his life. Now, somebody that was one of the first uh, participants in the program was named Marion Albert Pruitt. He was a federal inmate in the 1970s when he witnessed a murder and agreed to testify. His sentence was commuted, and he was given the new name of Charles Sonny Pearson. Fortunately, in 1979, he robbed a bank, kidnapped the bank teller, and then later killed her. He also killed a convenience store clerk as well as his common-law wife, racking up five deaths in total. He was convicted for the murders individually and received three life sentences and a death sentence. During that time, he actually tried extorting the media by confessing to murders in Florida, which he likely didn't commit. He was eventually put to death in Arkansas in 1999. And um, my thoughts about that story is like how embarrassing for the feds that like you let this guy out and five people lost their lives, you know, and he was in the program, you know, the other two were not, but this is, that's just awful.
1: Well, and, that, and that's the dark side of the program.
0: Yeah, exactly. Really. So one of the more interesting program participants is his name was Rayful Edmonds. He was a drug trafficker in D.C. in the 1980s. And D.C. was nicknamed Murder Capital of America at the time. And it's said that Edmonds contributed to this quite a bit uh, as he hired a lot of people to murder his rivals. He dealt large amounts of crack cocaine right at the beginning and up until the height of the crack epidemic. And he worked with some of the most notorious cartels. He had this very commanding presence and he was always dressed in the fanciest clothes. Although his business was quickly halted when he was arrested at age 24 on a 43 count indictment, including charges for drug trafficking, conspiracy and racketeering at his trial, the jurors identities were hidden for their protection and they sat behind bulletproof glass. Edmund was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. His mother, Constance Bootsy Perry, was also convicted for her her participation and was sentenced to 14 years. Edmund continued to deal drugs in prison and from prison, spending hours upon hours on the phones during the day making deals. He and another inmate were convicted of more drug charges in 1996. This is when Edmund flipped and began working for the feds as an informant, leading to the arrest of 10 major dealers in the D.C. area. He was moved to a top-secret prison and later received a reduced sentence for his cooperation, though he is still serving a 30-year sentence for dealing drugs in prison but remains in protective custody. So one of the program's most famous mobsters, as I mentioned before, was Sammy Gravano. He was the highest-ranking member of a crime family to flip at the time. He began his mob career as a member of the Colombo crime family before joining the Gambino family in the 1980s, and he worked his way up to underboss. Gravano is largely responsible for killing fellow Gambino member Paul Castellano, which is one of 19 murders he was involved in. In 1991, he overheard John Gotti disparaging him and implicating him on several murders on a wiretap. This prompted him to turn state state's witness and flip on Gotti. Gotti went to prison and Gravano entered the witness protection program and was relocated to Scottsdale, Arizona. So that my question here is, Okay, you were he was directly involved in 19 murders. Like maybe he didn't commit them all himself, but you're going to send this guy back out on the streets. Like, did we not learn our lesson? You know, I don't I don't know. So Gravano allegedly still had a ton of money on the street when he entered the program. Some estimates are up to $1.5 million. The FBI supposedly went to collect Gravano's debts for him. And after recouping his money, he opened this pool cleaning business called the Best Kept Secret, which I'm sorry, that is the best name for somebody (laughs) in the witness protection program. The Best Kept Secret. I thought that was good. So he went under the radar for a while until he got arrested again in 2001 for his participation and his son's ecstasy ring. He served 20 years for those drug charges and was paroled uh, in 2018. So the last story I want to talk about is that of Vincent Vinnie Ocean Palermo. He was the man who inspired the character Tony Soprano. He was a New Jersey mob boss and head of the DeKalbaconte family, and he owned a strip club named Wiggles, which was a popular hub for mob business at the time. He was very violent, but also well-respected for quite a while until he lost support as a boss. Another mob member who was also facing his own criminal charges flipped on Palermo. Palermo was then facing capital charges when he decided to flip and become an informant in 1999. Giving up the whole to family. He entered the witness protection program and was relocated to Houston, Texas, and given the name either Vincent or James Cabela. I saw it both ways, and I'm not sure which first name is correct. In 2009, an investigative report outed him as a part of the witness protection program and exposed him for running a strip club that was notorious for illegal activity. Uh, like drug dealing, prostitution. He filed for bankruptcy a few years later and sold the mansion that he owned in Houston. It's really unclear if he ever faced charges for the criminal activity at the strip club, but I don't think that he did. And one last note before we go on to a little bit of our last thoughts and discussion is Gerald Scherr, the founder of the program and the co author of the book um, that we discussed. He sadly passed in, in 2020. So, yeah, some final thoughts on this. Like I said, I, I learned I learned definitely more about the dark side of the program and more uh, about the logistics about you know vetting and getting into it. But then after after entering the program and just like I said, the the effect on the family and the witness themselves. It's just it's very devastating, and I don't think I don't think the movies really talk about that. Obviously, like it's very dramatized. It's it's very sensationalized in the movies. It's like a really cool thing, and it's it's really not that it's it's very it's much more serious it's a very difficult thing to go through and and I don't think a lot of people really think about that aspect of it
1: no and I think you know I think our pop culture tends to glamor- glamorize uh, glamorize it when in actuality it's not really the case at all
0: my question for you like who do you who do you think is benefiting more from the program do you think it's the feds who are getting this testimony and putting these people away or do you think it's the criminals that are benefiting more
1: you know, I think it's hard to say. i I think it depends on what the result is. Mm-hmm. but I, I I
0: initially I initially thought that it was the criminals that benefited more because they like either got away with something, they were handed new identities, new houses, all that stuff. But again, like seeing kind of more of what they go through, maybe not so much. And the feds like they still get what they need. and you know what I mean? So I, I don't know. I think I think, like you said, kind of depending on the situation you know, it might go either way. Tell us what you guys think.
1: I'd be interested to see what, what the feelings are on this, Mm -hmm. because I think it can go either way.
0: And I think something else I thought about was, and I want to hear from you guys, like, do you feel like this program is controversial? Like it's essentially helping criminals. Like 95% of them (laughs) are criminals. Like, is that a good thing? Do they deserve this? Is it worth getting, you know, a bigger fish or more people arrested and taken off the street and then with the, with the complications of the effect particular on kids, like, is this really a good thing? You know, I, I don't know.
1: And I think, I don't think anyone really knows for sure. I think it, again, it depends on quite frankly, it, I think it really just depends on what your feeling is about the program.
0: Like I said, I went into this, like kind of thinking it was cool. And all right, let me, let me research the logistics and see what this is all about. And it just, I just came away feeling more sad about it after after learning all this stuff. But that's, you know, that's me.
1: I mean, I definitely learned about the whole process. I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about the process. I think the real takeaway of all of this is the program is what you make of it. I think how however you feel about the program is gonna determine how you feel it's doing or what you think that the, the purpose of it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really like a lot of things that we talk about on this podcast, there is no black or white. It's gray.
0: Yeah, we definitely, we definitely bring the nuance to these topics for <laughs> sure. All right, guys. So that is our show. We will be back uh, next week with another episode from Tom. So don't forget to rate review and find us on Instagram and TikTok at the tell me about podcast and email us episode suggestions and comments to the tell me about podcast at gmail.com. Have a great week, everybody.
1: Bye-bye.